and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. I'm Brooke McCallery. My name's Ben McCallery and welcome to episode 251. We have another live podcast recording. We do indeed. This time with the wonderful, and I, I think it's the only guest you've had on the show besides me <laughs> that has lived at our home. I think that... Back in Australia I for think a period that's of true. time. Unless someone was living like in our in our roof crawl space and I didn't know about it. That's just true. scan out. It's, it's like Joshua possi- Fields Milburn living in our city. It's always a possibility with Joshua, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, we're, you're, you've got the pleasure of talking to Tish Oxenrider. I do. Guest of the Tish. show uh, from episodes 29 and 163. Yes. I think she's been on there three. T- anyway, they're, they're the two big episodes that she's been on. They're the two that you remember. Yeah, exactly. Just off the top of my head. Of course. Yeah. You're an encyclopedia of the Slow Home Podcast. So where did you record this podcast? So we recorded this at Book People in Austin, which is probably one of the coolest cities we've visited so far. Yeah, it is pretty sweet. Everywhere we've been has been great. This is just great plus. Yeah, exactly. I'm really considering doing a ranking of all the places we visited by the end of the year. Okay. I'm just going to try and offend the most amount of people. Sure. Yeah. Go for it. Anyway, Austin, terrific city, terrific barbecue. Thank you so much for those recommendations (laughs) that came through. We had such good recommendations. I'm salivating at the thought of going back. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Something that we just don't do in in Australia properly is is good barbecue. It's funny though because Australians think that they are kings and queens of barbecuing, but it's totally different. It's grilling. That's right. We grill very, very well. Yes. And, you know, best, you know, some of the best steaks we've ever had is by, you know, throwing it on the barbie. On the barbie. But I love the time and energy go- that goes into, like, smoking meats. and Right. Anyway, uh, I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs> go wipe your mouth. <laughs> and I just want to give Tish a huge shout-out for making tonight's event because she flew back in from London the day before. She was super jet-lagged, didn't let it show, and just showed up for it and I'm I'm really grateful to her for doing that because getting to to hang out with her in person again was such a joy. We had met once before at a conference and then she and her family stayed in our house for yeah. like a month. Yeah. But we weren't there. So yeah. yeah, it was just it was great. I mean and there aren't too many people that I speak to on the podcast who have the same wanderlust that we do and you know Tish and her family traveled the world for a year a couple of years ago and I don't know I just find her philosophy and mine quite similar about what slow and simple looks like which is not a particular you know optical kind of thing it's yeah. about how it feels and, and how it feels to live it absolutely so this is a particularly busy time at the moment we are currently well we've got events You've got an event sort of back to back to back to back. Yes. It's ridiculous. So coming up will be Connecticut on the 21st. That's in Southport, yep. Then Brooklyn. Yes, so I have an event with Jess Davis at the Greenlight Bookstore. Which on is the, the next day. The, the next day. Yep. And then on the 23rd, you'll be in Cape Cod. East Sandwich, Massachusetts, yes, so, at uh, Titcombs. At Titcombs. So insane, like Really insane back-to-back traveling distances to get there. How are you coping with it? Um, sometimes better than I expected and sometimes about how I expected. But for me, it was very intentionally about 
accepting that it's a crazy time, accepting that we'll be on the move, accepting that everything will look very imperfect, but trying, but showing up anyway, you know, and the way that I'm able to show up is by taking just a few minutes every day to slow down, uh, you know, and I've been sticking with my meditation habit most mornings and I'm still journaling or brain dumping or even just sitting in the sun, drinking a glass of water for a few minutes and kind of recentering myself. And that is, look, if I had my, my choice of how to be living slowness, it would look different. It would look like two hours of self-care every day, but it can't because, it, you know, sometimes life is fast and, and busy and complicated despite our best efforts. Uh, so actually that is a really nice kind of segue into what next month's slow experiment will be partly inspired by where we're at and, mm. and this kind of experiment, this big experiment in tilting and, and still somehow finding pockets of slow in a really busy time. Yeah. Essentially, we're going to spend all of September exploring different ways uh, to adopt mindfulness into life when life's really busy. So I'm, I'm talking like two or three minutes a day. Mm. So we will talk more about that. And there'll be ideas that contain in both slow and your first book, Destination Simple. I'm really looking. For, I'm really looking forward to this experiment. Same, because it's if ever we needed this, it's right now. Yeah. So it is solely, purely a self-centered choice to to make that our September experiment. But when we realised that September is also a really busy time for pretty much everyone, because if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, usually that's like you're back to school time. There's a lot going on. People have got to recalibrate to post summer. And if you're in the in the southern hemisphere, you kind of it almost starts ramping up into the end of the year. September is sort of one of those those funny months. I feel when the kids were at school, I used to find it really busy. Uh, so anyway, I think that it will have value for everyone, and we will talk about that more next week. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. So a couple of links: uh, slowyourhome.com/slash/two five one to the show for the show notes to this episode. And you can go over and visit slowyourhome.com slash events for more of those dates. Over to you and Tish. this idea of simple living or slow living to someone who's asking? Yeah, well, you know, so my interest in simple living came from when my family and I were living abroad in Turkey, and it was kind of a permission slip to have a do-over. I grew up in Austin and, um, you know, was just used to the, just life as was expected. And so it was just a great chance to ask, you know, before we bought anything, because we came with a blank slate, like, what do I actually want in my home? I didn't come with a lot of stuff. And so it was through that process that made me realize that um, it's easy, though, to swing the other pendulum and think that simple living looked like living with as few things as possible. Like, what can I get away with? Um, you know, what can I do without? And almost kind of be a martyr to that. And I kind of burned out on that, too. You know, I, I went too far the other way. And that's when I realized that simple living or slower living has nothing to do with a checklist or a laundry list of it has to look like this. You have to grow all your own food. You have to not have a car or, you know, anything like that. Um, to me, what it ultimately comes down to is living holistically with your life's purpose. 
And so if you reverse engineer that, it has to do with knowing what you're about and what you care about. But then once you know that, then all the moving parts, like if they're pointed in the same direction, to me, that looks like simple living. And that's why it can look different for you as it does for me and for everyone else. So it might actually look like a slightly bigger house than one might think to live simply, but that's because you value, let's say, hospitality and entertaining and so you want a particular space or you want to be the home in your neighborhood where all the teens want to hang out, you know, because that's a high value of yours. Um, or it might be a location thing. You know, my family and I moved to Georgetown, actually, because we wanted a smaller town kind of life where we can walk everywhere. That was a high value of ours, even if that meant some other challenges. But that was our choice. Um, so it's a lot of, of just knowing what you actually care about. Yeah. And that's how I would describe it, too. Figuring out what is worth caring more about in life and what's worth caring less about and then making space for the things worth caring more about by letting go of the stuff that isn't worth caring about and that sounds simple but then you dig into it and of course you're faced with all these questions what do I care about what do I actually value what are my core uh, reasons or priorities in life uh, and the way that I came to this whole idea of values and priorities was uh, I was diagnosed with postnatal depression when our second baby was uh, just he was six weeks old um, previous to that my life looked great on paper we had a, a, like a lovely house in the Blue Mountains out of Sydney that we were renovating we had uh, so much stuff that we'd never parked our car in the garage because it was full of boxes. I always get some nods of uh, <laughs> acknowledgement from that one. Uh, I had two wardrobes full of clothes, never had anything to wear. My kids, I mean, one was a tiny baby. He didn't play with toys, yet he had a room full of toys. And on top of that, we had overcommitment. We had weekends booked out for months in advance. We had debt and anxiety. Uh, and this all came to a head when I was diagnosed with the, the postnatal depression. And as a, as a part of that whole process, I was forced to slow down. My psychiatrist asked me one day, uh, have you thought about doing less? When I was complaining to her about how busy I was, I had never thought about doing less. That did not seem like an option to me. Uh, and yet I was forced to. But it wasn't until I sat down three years later and wrote my own eulogy that I finally figured out why I wanted to make these changes. And initially, I was much the same as you. I would read about simple living online and minimalism online, and it was great. It was inspiring. It made me declutter. I decluttered 25,000 things in a year. Uh, but then I realised that I wasn't evolving. You know, I just became... I, I kind of replaced one set of Joneses, Mr and Mrs Jones down the road, with another who had less stuff. But that, that then became the obsession to fit in with these people. So when you came up to that point of burnout, like how did you figure out what shifts, like how did you figure out where your energy needed to go? Mm -hmm. I love that you bring up the eulogy because to me, it all comes down to some reverse engineering. Like if you think that, if you think to what do I really want to care about at the end of my life? And then I look backwards and I say, you know, I'm not going to say like, I am so proud that I had five t-shirts, you know, or, or whatever, you know, it's going to be so much more for me anyway, about people, about relationships and about experiences over things. And so to me, once I started thinking about like, what is actually the point, big picture, 
then um, I could start answering questions through a bit of a filter. And what was kind of cool about that is when I started thinking about reverse engineering, it also made me look backwards um, to my childhood and thinking about what did I actually care about in my childhood? Because I think there's a lot of that we can look at and think about um, when we didn't have all these social expectations put on us. We just kind of lived life. And we're just kind of ourselves. And so I thought about sort of those things that mattered to me. And so I thought about those sorts of questions. And then it, for me personally, I'm a writer. And so I did a lot of journaling. I did a lot of self-reflecting, a lot of, you know, I don't often know what I think until I write it. And so I started writing it and then I started realizing, you know, what I cared about. And then I used that as a rubric to start thinking through what mattered to me. So an example for me is travel. Um, we place a high value on travel um, when... It, for a school year a couple of years ago, we traveled around the world as a family. In fact, we stayed at Brooke's house in Sydney while she was in Canada. So that was great. So we you know, could house it for her. And um, so that to me was a high priority. So that meant other things worked around that. So, um, you know, that meant living in a much smaller house because that way we didn't have to have a high mortgage or deal with other things. So we could channel more of our money through that. So to me, it all had to do with a lot of, you know, using those things that I actually cared about as my filter and then a lot of just more art than science. I don't know how you feel, Brooke, but it's, it helps me. It's freeing to me to realize it's a lot of just like choosing a little at a time instead of being kind of hard-nosed and black and white about myself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That was very much the case for me. I mean, I knew initially I wanted to simplify. Uh, When I first heard this idea of simple living, slowing down, I was reading about meditation and running, you know, running marathons and drinking green smoothies and doing an hour of yoga a day and all of these things, like they're appealing, but I didn't have the time or the capacity to deal with any of that. I mean, I would have exploded had I tried to meditate at this point in my life. But what I could do was take really small steps towards a shift. And I I really approached the idea um, as an experiment. What would happen if we decluttered our house? What would happen if? I started saying no to things on the weekend. What would happen if um, I refused to answer emails after 6 p.m.? You know, what would happen if? And all of these things started to free up space, you know, and I talk about it as like buffer or margin rather than necessarily hours of downtime a day. I mean, previously I was operating at about 115% capacity. Mm-hmm. So if something went wrong or if I had a bad day or the kids got sick or I spilled something before we left um, the house, I would explode. I had nowhere to go. You know, I felt like there was no capacity to deal with that sort of stuff. And by removing some of those extra things, and sometimes they were actually things, but other times they were expectations or stories or, you know, shoulds. uh, By removing them, I discovered that I had just a little bit of space in which to expand when things required it mm. and when I didn't require it it was really nice to have that that breathing room yeah um you know ha- okay so I think what often happens at this point in a conversation I have with someone is that people are thinking this sounds fantastic I don't have time <laughs> which is the irony I think that was absolutely <laughs> me as well so how how do you I guess broach that idea of being too busy to slow down even though when we're too busy to slow down we really need it right you know, I like how you talked about doing little experiments. To me, it reminds me of whenever you're doing a diet to figure out what foods affect you. You know, if you do this full fast and then you slowly reintroduce foods instead of just trying to, you know, go full in and then and then you just, you know, it becomes overwhelming. Like, I can't live this way. 
I think doing a little at a time is key. It's that whole idea of eating an elephant. You know, if you see that where you want to be, where you want a slower schedule, you want maybe fewer things or whatever, but it feels so overwhelming that we end up just freeze freezing. I think picking one thing was key for me. You know, like we are going to choose, for example, to have a screen Sabbath. Like one day a week, we're not going to turn on screens. We're going to try to live without devices, get around as you know best we can without looking at our phones or our, you know, whatevers, and just see how that goes and give ourselves permission to just say like either good for other people, not for me, or say like, wow, there is really some benefit to this that is worth adding to our life. And then just making that a thing. And then a few weeks later or a month later, trying something else and seeing if we can add it. I think that's great. It's a lot about the grace in giving yourself, you know? Absolutely. And also practicing these these changes as yeah. well. I mean, when I first started trying to do butter, I looked at our two-car garage in the backyard and I thought, I haven't touched any of this stuff for two years. It's in boxes. This is going to be so easy. I'm going to go out, declutter everything in that garage over the period of a weekend. <laughs> but that's not what happened. <laughs> we went out Saturday morning, started opening boxes, sorting through all of this stuff. And we made piles of things to keep, things to donate, things to give to someone, things to recycle and so on. And then a little pile over the side, which was designated the just-in-case pile. Everything ended up in the just-in-case pile. Uh, and we had, after about two hours of sorting, just a huge mess in our garage. And we gave up and we walked out of the garage, we rolled the doors down and we left it for like a year. <laughs> and that was yeah. the thing. I was trying to eat the entire elephant. So I went back to the opposite end of the spectrum and decluttered my purse and I pulled out, you know, half a tree's worth of receipts from my purse <laughs> and it took five minutes and it felt amazing. And I thought, okay, there's something that there's something powerful here as long as I am patient enough to take it one step at a time. At a time. Yeah. Um, and I think that you've discovered much the same in your entire process of, of shifting. It's amazing, isn't it, when you look back on the changes that you've made. I mean, it doesn't... But I think the reason I wouldn't do those small things is because there's no possible way that decluttering my purse could change anything. And yet it has. Yeah. Yeah, like I can think now, there are times when I, I still just notice the things that I want to do or haven't done or, you know, our house still gets messy or I still, I'm like, how am I still decluttering books? You know, however many years later when I first started doing it, it's just because it comes in. But it's that idea, you know, you've heard that kind of funny quote about like cleaning while kids are growing is like shoveling snow while it's still snowing that idea it's like we think in our heads well you know life is crazy I'm not going to do it now I'm going to do it when things are calmer and that never is going to happen and so to just do a little at a time yeah it gives you that small win it's like that snowball effect to make you want to keep doing more and more and more in fact the thing I tell people whenever they write me or ask me like I'm so overwhelmed I don't know where to begin I tell them to get rid of a hundred things. Right. And that sounds like a lot, but it's actually not. Like if you think of an expired jar from your spice drawer or, you know, some old magazine, like that counts as a thing. A hundred adds up really fast. And what almost always happens is somebody ends up like getting rid of a lot more or that just that whole action begets action thing where that felt so good. They want to try one more thing, but it gives you that visual decluttering win. I think that is so key. And that stuff, I mean, it's not hard to let go of, but it weighs. Like, mm -hmm. It's a weight. I didn't realize how heavy my excess stuff was until I didn't have it anymore. Yeah. And then I realized that I didn't miss any of it either. Yeah. I mean, we eventually did 
go back to the garage <laughs> after a year. But in that year, I had become really good at this practice of letting go, of making decisions. I mean, and that's a muscle, I think, in and of itself. So we went back to our garage after a year. We decluttered the house, like, imperfectly, but it felt great. Um, and we got rid of everything out of that garage after a weekend. And we looked at the garage, and it was empty, and we realised we didn't even want the garage anymore. <laughs> so we sold it to a neighbour, and he came and he pulled it down and took it off to his country property. We ripped up the concrete slab and planted a huge veggie garden and put in a trampoline. And until we sold the house in January this year, we had spent time in that space every single day. And I still have yet to find something that better symbolises what we stand to gain by letting go. Previously, it had been heaviness and guilt and, you know, wasted money and obligation and all of these really negative emotions and we replaced it mm. with life and space and family and love you know and that really is symbolic of figuring out what our why was you know and that was where my eulogy came into it uh, I figured out what was important I figured out what was the key priorities in life and making decisions gradually every day to get you closer to that mm. uh, now I want to ask you though there are times in life that are undoubtedly full and busy and fast-paced regardless of how simple and slowly you try and live. So how do you combat that? How do you keep a, a lid on that? Yeah, you know, I think that's a great thing to talk about because we can't control every variable in our life. You know, our kids' schools might not care if we don't want to, you know, fill our calendars or, or whatever it is. Or just life is crazy. I think it's a lot of seeing the big picture. So for me, it's a lot of times um, looking at, let's say, our calendar and saying, okay, this week might feel crazy, but that doesn't mean that's just like all is lost and this is how my life is now. It means the next week we say no with even more fervor. And, you know, we say no to almost everything kind of so that we have that balance over a span of, you know, a larger amount of time as opposed to a micro amount of time. It also means a lot of times, like you brought up expectations, and I think it's really good to think about a lot of times we say yes to things without even asking what the expectation is. We, we've already give somebody that expectation of like, they are going to be really upset if I say no to this thing. Well, you know, why do I think that if I actually think back and realize maybe they won't care a lot of times, <laughs> most of the time they don't, you know? So it's like that idea of um, answering for somebody else before I even give them the freedom to, you know, be okay with, with my choices. Uh, I think it's really key to, to remember that people aren't thinking about us nearly as much as we think they are in a good way in all the right ways you know and so it's kind of nice that our lives are, are yeah they matter and they're big but they're also small yes. you know and and in the big scheme of things it's it's okay to say no to these things that we think are huge you know exactly and there's this yeah. urgency versus importance kind mm -hmm. of yeah you know tension yeah. as well i think we've mistaken urgent which is often other people's other people's priorities other people's requirements or important. They're not necessarily the same thing. Email's a great example of yeah. that. I mean, this whole inbox zero thing. No. <laughs> uh, like you, you, you never. I mean, I remember I saw Tish speak about four years ago at an event, uh, and you were kind of were talking about this whole idea of um, managing workflow when you're self-employed and you work on the internet. And you said, 
never do you get to the end of the day and you're like, well, I'm done with Twitter. Like, I got to the end of Twitter. <laughs> and email's it, it, the same. Like, yeah. it really, I think that renegotiating, recalibrating what enough looks like in terms of work, in terms of stuff, in terms of busyness is at the core of this. And that takes time and it's messy. Mm-hmm. You know, figuring that stuff out is really messy. Yeah. Now, you said a word a minute ago, balance, mm. which I think strikes at the heart of this whole busyness issue that so many people are struggling with, I think this, the idea of work-life balance is damaging in the way that it's sold now. What do you think about it? Right. It's this idea of, um, you know, I almost picture this when you, when you think of something balanced, it means like all the sides are exactly the same and way the same. And I don't know about y'all, but that's just very rarely my life, you know, where everything is equal and that's just not it for me. To me, it's a lot more about rhythms that feel good to me, um, where I'm not doing too much, but I'm not also needlessly saying no, you know, running the under other pendulum. It's also backing up and looking at the bigger span of life. You know, instead of thinking about today needs to be perfectly balanced, it's a little bit more of the week or the month or even like this particular season of my kid's school or whatever it is backing up. So, you know, if if my kid is in a particular sport, it might feel busier during that sport season. But that means for the next like six weeks after that or two months after we are hardly doing anything, you know. And so it's a lot more of that balance big picture yes. way more than like zooming in on the day absolutely i, I kind of liken it to a one-legged stool mm, yeah. <laughs> you could potentially balance on it but you're not having any fun all of your energy is going into staying upright yeah uh, and i think work-life balance is much the same yeah. i don't have a single day where i'm like nailed it nailed it everything you know yeah. Yeah. i don't have a week where i feel like i've done that but yeah. six months i mean and i feel like it's just that <clears throat> Consistent practice of checking in with your priorities, maybe every change of season or once a year or whatever works for you, but, and gut checking, you know, what are my priorities? What are the most important things to me? How do I feel like I'm doing across the past six months or three months? And when you get that pang in the gut, you know, like we all know when we're not giving things enough energy and it doesn't have to be today, but maybe over this next month. How can I spend more time with my parents? How can I turn up for my kids? How can I look after my own mental health? Whatever it may be. So I think it's much more like a holistic view of balance rather than this daily, you know, magazine lifestyle of just happening to to find 36 hours in a 24-hour period. Um, But also I, I talk about this idea of tilting in my book, which is saying the exact opposite of balance. I refuse to balance. I am tilting into what requires my attention in this moment. And that tilt changes dozens of times a day, you know, but when I'm with my kids, I'm with them. I'm not trying to answer emails. I'm not, I'm trying not to think about what's happening next. I'm trying not to think about work or whatever issue I may be struggling with. I'm with them. And they can tell. They know. I think our kids know when we dial it in. I know when I dial it in. So I think there's something really important with presence, you know, and really showing up for what we're doing. (laughs) Well, one thing I was going to say back to that whole, um, I love the tilting concept, is that something I added to my rhythm about a year ago is this idea called a think day. I made it up. Um, It was basically my permission slip to not do anything but think that day. And it it tends to be needed whenever I have a lot going on. And so it feels so counter 
you know, natural where it's like, no, I need a day to get a lot done. But what I do instead is I purposely put nothing on my agenda and instead I give myself permission. And sometimes when I say a day, it might be an afternoon. Like if I have a lot going on, you know, um, for the first time ever, actually, I did a think weekend a few months ago and that was amazing. Like I worked it out with my family and I went away for the weekend and I just had a quiet. And that's when I most often can zoom out and see how my life is doing and where I can ask some questions about the past 90 days, how I am in the present and what would I like to see happen in the next upcoming 90 days. And it gives myself permission to like get away from the noise and get away from the expectations, the the feeling I get from other people maybe, or I'm thinking I'm getting from other people. It just, it's a perspective mm-hmm. recalibration and that's been really helpful. So I that's the that. thing. Yeah. Right. So, I, and I think that's the interesting thing about this idea of slow living. People say, how can not answering email overnight or how can decluttering change your life so significantly? That's how. Because there are so many things that I am now aware of in my family, in myself, in the world, that I just did not have the time or the capacity or the energy to notice before. And really, I think it's in the art of noticing and and creating space every day, even if it's five minutes, to spend in the noticing. And that's mindfulness as well. Mindfulness is such a buzzword still, but it's powerful for, for that reason. It, isn't, it, it doesn't have to be meditation. It doesn't have to be a cute coloring book. It doesn't have to be anything in particular other than noticing and choosing to spend time in the noticing because that's where everything changes for me. That's where my relationships have changed. That's where my work has changed. That's where the way that I live in my community and, you know, on the planet has changed. And it's, it's why I've come to believe, honestly, that, that creating a little space and a little slowness each of us has the power to make huge shifts, but only if we do it slowly. I <laughs> think that's, that's the irony. I, I discovered slow living and I wanted it done yesterday. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. You know, it doesn't work like that. So, um, I mean, I guess before we go out for questions, what are some of the ways that, that it's changed for you? I mean, what, what awareness, what realisation, what, what moments has it brought to you? Yeah, whenever you brought up mindfulness, it reminded me of this um, thing I started adding adding to my journaling practice. I try to journal every day, and that's keeping a gratitude list, and that resets everything because a lot of that panic, frantic-y feeling I get is because I am not aware of how much goodness I already have in my life and feeling like there's something missing, like there, you know, I'm either you know, there's people that have gotten something that I don't quite have yet or whatever it is, but uh, to make this practice of writing down at least one up to three every day, just three things I'm thankful for. And that sounds so like, that sounds childlike almost, but if you can zero in and get really specific and it can even be silly things, Mm -hmm. you know, nothing important, this great show that I am really into right now or some ingredient in my dinner or whatever, but it's the noticing that really gives me the perspective I need to where it just kind of quells those like yearnings and desires for more and to overcommit because I realize like, oh, what I've already got is pretty great. I just want to keep it that way and, you know, keep that protection of, of you know, goodness in my life. Yeah. And I think it's the gratitude, the noticing is so incredibly powerful uh, and it, it stops us from slipping into or maybe brings us back from discontentment you know that feeling of not quite enough i haven't done enough Uh, i don't my clothes aren't fashionable enough my house isn't tidy enough 
it's all of these things where like, that's fear and that's where we feel like we're lacking. And that's when we go out and think, okay, well, how can I fill this gap? How can I, what can I buy? What can I do? What can I say yes to? Um, what, what is it that I can add to my life to fill that, that hole of discontentment? Um, usually it's taking stuff away, <laughs> you know, and, and I don't mean necessarily stuff. It might be, but it's also just giving yourself the space and time for five minutes a day, two minutes a day, you know, just some time where you can sit in that, that noticing and that perspective and that enoughness. So, I mean, I'm curious, do you guys have any questions that you would like to ask? Hi. Yes, ma'am. Um, I am pretty sure I read this book in your uh, resource back, Chasing Slow by Aaron Lechner. Mm -hmm. I read it a few years ago, and I started to try and follow that way of life, and, and I had a series of mental health issues and that got blown out of the water. And now I'm back to a point where I'm ready to do this. In fact, I've been cleaning out my apartment uh, the last few weeks. And tomorrow I'm gonna start organizing what's left that I really need to keep. And that is causing the most anxiety because I don't know where to put things. So, have you got any advice that would help me with that anxiety, ma'am? Yeah, I mean, my first piece of advice is um, to acknowledge how far you've come. It sounds like you're already really tackling the issue yeah. head on, and the fact that you've acknowledged that that's what you want to do is fantastic. Because I think so much of the, the stress comes from trying to convince ourselves otherwise. But my, my first real piece of practical advice is to take it very slowly. There won't be a perfect solution out of the box literally out of a box or also, you know, the first thing that you try may or may not work perfectly. But I think that give yourself some grace with that process. I mean, I can talk about my experience. I decluttered our house uh, fully three times before I felt like I got it to a place where it was fine. You know, it felt good. Uh, it wasn't perfect, but I wasn't looking for perfect. Um, so I think experiment. You know, rather don't go out and buy yourself a whole heap of storage solutions because that is probably not going to be the solution. I bought everything I'm going. Great. Um, you know, and just just start. I, I think if you're looking for organisation, I think just keeping like with like initially is a great place to start. Keeping things that you know you use frequently, you know, accessible and easily accessible is great because then what that also might um, see you doing is put things that you don't use very often but you've kept. Um, a little further out and perhaps in six months time when you're when you're simplifying further you'll realize that you haven't used that thing for six months and perhaps do I even need it you know and I think it's really this pro it, it is a slow process for me I had things that were absolutely vital to my life the first time I decluttered and they were never going to leave like they were always going to stay in my house and then the second time I went through the house they were you know, they were still important, but not probably not quite as vital. And by the third time I went through the house, they had transferred across the clutter. You know, and it was just this process of recalibration. So I think take it slow, see what works, see what doesn't, and, um, you know, you'll start to figure out a solution that works. But good luck, though. I mean, it's, I think it's fantastic what you're Thank doing. You. Yeah. Hi. Hi. So um, I guess my question is kind of, so a lot of us maybe live with other people, a spouse, a significant other, roommates, whatever. And so 
thinking about how to incorporate the work I'm doing on slow and, and, and across relationships, across people who live in the same house and things like that. What's your advice for that? Um, my experience was I decided from very early on not to try and drag other people into the changes I was making. First of all, I don't think I would have been able to cope with it anyway. I was very much digging deep into myself because I needed to. But also I knew that if I tried to drag my husband along, he might go along with it for a while, but that's a really good way of building resentment. <laughs> you know, so I decided that I was going to deal with my own stuff first, and it turns out, like, there was a lot of it, so that kept me busy. <laughs> and I was also fortunate that my kids were little uh, at the time. They were kind of six months old and two, so they didn't really care what I was up to, and they didn't care if I was giving away some of their clothes because they didn't feel it or whatever. That's, I think, the first thing is to deal with our own stuff first. And what I discovered was that my, the changes, the benefits that I ended up living with, you know, Ben came home one day and asked if I joined a cult. <laughs> because I had changed so much and the benefits to my mental health and, you know, shedding physical possessions, all that sort of stuff. He's like, not that I mind, but, uh, and I convinced him that it wasn't a cult. But he also could see that it was genuinely very good for me. And that became motivation for him to try. Like he came home one weekend and realised that he had far more clothes than I did. He's like, well, okay, what can I do here? And I found him going through his business shirts, you know, and that was the first step. So I think that gentle, lead by gentle example is probably the best way, which can be really frustrating when you're so ready for everyone to get on board. But, you know, also I think remembering that they may not be where you're at. You know, you've possibly been thinking about this whole thing for a month, a year, five years, and you talking to them could possibly be the first time they've thought about it. So they're not going to be where you're at even if you wish they were. But then I, I really think just except accentuating the positive, accentuating the benefits is a great way of motivating people to, to join you eventually. And also understanding that relationships are compromise, essentially. You know, we don't live in a vacuum. Um, and it's pretty rare. I don't think I've come across anyone who's like my, my partner and I or my roommate and I are like on this exact same page with this stuff where it's a constant, you know, state of flux, I think. Have you found similar or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, your answer is exactly my answer. And I do find we um, in our family, we say relationships over things. And that looks both the same with like not having stuff, but also getting rid of things. Yes. Like if this is going to damage our relationship, it's not worth it decluttering it, getting rid of it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I, and I really like that. And I think that also can extend to maybe extended family or friends as well, yeah. who can be some people's love language is gift giving. And when you're trying to declutter, that can be challenging. So I think that having a certain amount of grace and love in your response to that, but also understanding that you don't need to own the expectations of other people and their stuff, you know. So I have a very fluid idea of ownership. You know, stuff flows in, stuff flows out, and I don't feel bad about it. Um, but I like that, relationships over stuff. Hi. Uh, how do you say no? Like, what, what, like, what phrases do you use to not be rude? Um, my friend Kelly Exeter gave me the best one I've ever come across, and I use it consistently. Um, and it is, let me get back to you. <laughs> but the reason that it works is because it tells the person asking, okay, the answer may actually be no. You know, there is space for them to acknowledge that. But it also says to me, the answer can be no. Um, and I find it usually just provides 
enough space for me to really question, okay, if I'm saying yes to this, what do I have to say no to as a result? If I say yes to this extra commitment, am I saying no to time and family? Am I saying no to, you know, a weekend off? Am I, am I saying no to, like, money? Am I saying, you know, but really weighing up what we're saying yes to and what that then means we have to say no to. So I find that then running it through that filter is all also really helpful. I have always struggled with saying no. So that's why that phrase has been so helpful to me because it says you have permission to say no and it also says to the person asking, she has permission to say no. <laughs> so do you later on say no? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> but it, it's just, yeah, I mean, I don't just ignore them after that. Uh, it, it just gives me that space. And I do get back to them. I mean, whether it's a phone call or an email or in person, I can say I've thought about it and I just don't have the capacity. Or I would love to say yes to this, but I can't until June. You know, and it, it really gives me, uh, and I mean, period of doing that a lot at the moment I'm on book tour for four months so I'm getting a lot of requests for things and people wanting to to do stuff and like totally email me in November and often I find that the you know some of those requests fall by the wayside some don't and but then I have the capacity to come back to them when you know when I have have the capacity yeah so you talk about a lot of grace which is beautiful but looking back what would you have done differently if you could change one thing in this process that's a really good question. Um, I would have been kinder to myself. I really spent a lot of time beating myself up about not doing it right or not doing it perfectly or it not looking like the Instagram version of slow living, you know. doesn't. That's not real life, you know. But I took a long time to convince myself of that. I felt like, and I would tell people and I would believe it when, I'm, when I would say, be kind to yourself, you know. That's not real life. Stop comparing yourself life is messier than that so stop thinking that that is what it should look like but then to myself I would say no no you need to do better you need to live so um and I think that has got a lot to do with my own mental health issues from being a teenager you know all the way through to being well older than a teenager uh and it was that I had to learn how to be kind so that was actually you know another version of giving grace but yeah, I, I, I think that that was it. And probably, you know, just let go of what other people think a lot more. Because I discovered with the stuff that I had kept and the things that I was surrounding myself with and the reasons that I was doing things or buying things or keeping things was so much to do with what other people thought of success, of a life well lived, of busyness, all of these things. And it turns out that I don't care. You know, I, I really don't anymore and not that I don't care about other people but I don't care about other people's perceptions of things that aren't priorities of mine outward signs of success or status it just doesn't interest me so it was so nice to let go of that truly yeah I felt like I you know like a weight was lifted off my shoulders hey so I'm a student and I find I get frustrated when I'm trying to make changes because I feel like my whole life it is just kind of like preparing for what's going to happen after college. Right. And I guess like, do you have any advice specifically for someone's in college or do you know anyone who's talking about slow living whenever you're really young? Because I have trouble, like, I get, I, I get jealous a lot, like whenever I'm listening to your podcast, I'm like, wow. One day, I would love to have a garden. That would, like, really help me out. And that's, like, that's not going to happen for me. And a lot of the talk about, like, just stuff that isn't part of my life and won't be for a long time. 
I kind of like just plan my future life instead of doing something. That's a really great question. Um, ben and I have spoken about it a number of times on the podcast, but just in sort of if we've got a Q&A episode and people would ask us what would our advice have been to ourselves 20, uh, when, how many years ago? <laughs> Five years ago. <laughs> um, and first of all, I just, I honestly want to say how fantastic it is that you are engaged with that because I was such a moron at, in, in university. I was, like, I had no inkling of the world or perspective on any of it. I, I really wasn't. I was just reactive, you know, and I just was existing. So honestly, hats off to you for, for even being there. Truly, I think it's fantastic and it makes me feel really excited about the future honestly. But I think, do you know if anyone who is younger who is talking specifically about these ideas? Oh, I'm sure. I see them all the time on my right. Twitter and Instagram, but I can't even remember their names. I know for me personally, um, something that's helpful is this <coughs> idea of collecting experiences and not collecting things. You know, you're at an age, like I look back to my college years, I went to UT, um, where I feel like you have the most amount of freedom with the least amount of responsibility. And so you've got just this wide open time. I'm not saying everything's great or you're not busy. I get the commitments to experiment, you know, to try a lot of things, to to talk to a lot of different people, to have the time to, you know, sit down and ask somebody to mentor you or to, you know, or just to see what it was like and to be a certain type of person or live a certain way and start collecting those things and gleaning wisdom from those. Um, another one that's, I, I really encourage that might be a little bit of a tangential point but this idea of um travel i think if there's any way when you have this amount of freedom to do that to do that <laughs> because of how much you can learn about kind of the big picture of how so many people around the world live especially compared to the u.s where we just collect stuff and we live in huge houses and we don't walk everywhere and and so if you have any way to do that and then learn from that that to me is a huge part of what you can do it's a lot of like instead of planning your future life ask what does it look translated like now like if you don't have a backyard garden what's some other form of slowing down and simplifying that maybe some of us that have children in school can't do Mm -hmm. you know think of the flip side of that coin like what can i do instead i don't know yeah, I would definitely agree with the idea of experiences and experimentation. I mean, it is a, like an amazing time to do that and to broaden the, the people you talk to. There's one book that, she doesn't specifically talk about it as a uni student or anything like that, but Annie Razor Rowland, who I spoke with oh, yeah. on the podcast. She's on my show. Yeah. yeah. So she has written a book called The Art of Frugal Hedonism, and it's beautiful. It's just, I love her philosophy. I love her as a person. She is able to make experiences of joy and pleasure out of very little and it's got nothing to do with anything other than the present moment um so if you haven't come across her i would definitely recommend her book for a good place to begin um i mean she's older she's not a student anymore but and she's probably my age ish but she still has been able to to create this freedom that is anything but like it's not future focused it's today focused and it's really lovely um but also i think Cast your net kind of far and wide and, and find things that inspire you or make you passionate or make you excited or curious or nervous uh, and and see where that takes you. Because I think that it's really interesting, you know, 
the grass always feels greener. Um, you know, and the perspective is from someone who maybe has a mortgage or has a family or has a job that keeps them really, you know, tied down. They're like, I would love for that to be my life. And then, you know, but you're, and you see things like on the, on the other side that are similarly appealing. So I think use an opportunity as an opportunity to just start looking around what sparks interest in you, what, what feels like it might be in alignment with values of yours and, and see. I certainly had no idea what my values were when I was younger. Um, and it was travel, actually, that, that really brought me to a sense of, of who I am. It took me a long time to figure it out after that, but it, I, I still look back at that. When I graduated, I travelled for a year, and that was probably one of the, the biggest things that I've done. May I also suggest to the young lady, there are a number of community gardens in this city. That's a great suggestion. With very small lots. <laughs> That will require a great deal of time yeah, and effort. There's one right up the street here, as a matter of fact, okay. right behind the book people here. Um, that's, a, that's a fantastic suggestion, actually, and kind of broaden that out. If there's something that you're interested in, I mean, find local community groups or like-minded people as well, if you've got time. I mean, not everything's going to be really full, but make, think about different ways of experimenting with those things that, that are appealing to you about you know, having a house or having a garden or whatever it may be and see. Yeah. Any more questions? Were there things that you struggled with bridging the gap between daydreaming that you wanted to do it and actually putting it into action? Yes. And <laughs> because sometimes I feel like I'm so close on so many things. There's tons of stuff that I've obviously daydreamed it now I'm living it. Right. And so it feels great to be in that space. But there's also so many things that I feel like are just there and I'm like, how many more books do I need to read to inspire myself to actually do it? Like, because I get into it, it's like every podcast and every book, and I'm in it, but I'm still like, I'm still just reading a book in right. some ways and something. And there's a fine line, isn't there, yeah. between gathering inspiration and motivation and then not doing anything with it, you know? Um, and I wrote in the book, reading books, listening to podcasts, it's great motivation, it lights a fire under us. But if we don't do anything and we just sit there, then we still haven't achieved anything and we've probably burnt a hole in our pants, you know. And that's kind of, I was much the same for quite a long time. I spent a lot of time gathering inspiration and motivation and how-tos and the bookmarks and tabs open on my browser were overwhelming, uh, but it took a while to do something with it. And I think that there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but commit to making one small change, tiny, like, you think of the smallest change you could possibly make in whatever area that you're looking to simplify and cut it in half. Mm. And it's so small, it feels silly to not do it. Mm. Yeah, and that's some days when I was decluttering, I am so motivated, I desperately want all of this stuff out of my house, but I just can't do it, I'm overwhelmed. Uh, so, okay, go and get one thing out of the kitchen and throw it in the bin. Like one dried up pen, one empty shampoo bottle, just something. And almost always what happened was I would grab another five things or I would feel the shift in energy to from one of stagnation to one of doing. Mm -hmm. And that was often all I, I needed. Mm -hmm. But even if you only do the one thing, that's okay because that's a step forward. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of things that we have wanted to do for so long and just it took so long to get there, my husband going self-employed was the, probably the biggest one. I spoke to him maybe four years ago, about this potential 
for him to be able to quit his corporate job and become a freelance consultant. And he just outright said that is never going to happen. And I could see, I could see the potential for it. But, I mean, it's his job, it's his career. I'm certainly not going to, to push it. And it was probably every six months, maybe every time we went away for a weekend or went for a drive, we would talk about it. And every six months, the resistance was slightly less. Until one point, he's like, maybe. Maybe I can see how that would happen. And it was another year after that of those conversations. What would that look like? When's the perfect time? Oh, yeah, there is no perfect time. Uh, and we sat down New Year's Day two years ago. And he said, okay, let's do it. And something that felt so momentous for so many years, this huge mountain that we were probably never going to get to the top of, the last bit felt effortless because there had been so much work happening, you know, behind the scenes between both of us, for him and for me and for, you know, the way we had structured things and all that sort of stuff. But it, it, there was ease to it where previously it, there was no ease. There was resistance all the way. So I think sometimes it just takes time. You know, we can see where we want to be. We can even potentially see the path. But sometimes it just takes more time, you know, recalibration. Yeah, I think that's probably the, the biggest one. But also saying yes to this book tour as well and the travel, that was a big one. Initially it was like, what a crazy idea that we'll never do. <laughs> and it was a gradual, again, shift of, of possibility and potential. Yeah, so keep at it. Don't feel like you're never going to get there because there will be a moment where all of a sudden the thing that felt hard, there's ease there. It feels effortless because of all the work that you're doing now. Thank you. You're welcome. Lucky last. Anyone have a last question? If you have any advice on how to parent a child who attaches a lot of emotion to things. Yes. I have I have four, but one especially will write the tooth fairy that she'd like to keep the dollar and the tooth because she wants to give them to her children one day. That's sweet. Right. Yeah, I mean, and that, that is a challenge right off the bat. Like, I'm not going to lie. That's, that can be really challenging, especially if you are working actively towards simplifying. The way we deal with it is to give our kids boundaries within which they are free to make their own choices. And in terms of stuff, that before we, we sold our house, that looked like their bedroom being their space. I'm honestly a big believer in the importance of, of kids having a space in the world that is theirs, that they feel they are in control of to a certain extent. And uh, inside each of the kids' rooms, they had a bookshelf and a toy box under their bed. And that was theirs to fill with whatever they wanted. And if what they wanted to fill it with was a stick collection, that's fine. <laughs> but when it gets full, they know that they need to look at what they keep and what they don't keep. And I'm such a boring mum. The first day of school holidays, every school holidays, <laughs> time to clean up, guys. And we would declutter their rooms the first day of school holidays. <laughs> Great. But it, was, it became really easy because they, they knew then that that was the time that they would need to make decisions about what they kept and what they didn't. And the way that I made that a lot less scary for them was to give them uh, six months. So anything they didn't want or anything they weren't sure about, I put in a box and I put that box away with the date written on top. And I said to the kids, if you want anything out of this box in the next six months, just ask and you can have it. And I think out of all of the times we did that, I got two things out of those boxes. 
everything else. And they knew when they put them away, if they didn't ask for them in six months, that I would give them away. I'd give them to charity or give them to, you know, younger cousins or whoever. And they were fine with it. And not once have they come back a year later and said, where's my pink teddy bear? Because they were able to safely kind of let go of it. So I think giving them boundaries within which they are free to make certain choices is, is really helpful. If you're going from kind of keeping all the teeth down to that, it might take, you know, like a, a bit of time to, to get those boundaries to a place where you're happy with them and your, your kid's happy with them as well. But that's something to work towards. And I think also just making the process of letting go of stuff not so scary is helpful because I think there is fear and emotion attached to, even with our little ones, attached to letting go. We're sentimental. A lot of people attach a memory or a person or a place to an item and learning that that memory is not actually attached to the item is a lesson a lot of adults struggle with. So I can understand why kids do. But that might be a, a good place to begin. And, and might I add that depending on what sequence of birth they're in, there might be a different a psychological development that they have to overcome and look right. at that component. Right, exactly. And I think... Um, I'm, again, a big believer in not pushing things if they feel like they're going to be damaging or, or hurtful as well. But, yeah, and everyone's different as well. Everyone's development is different. The way people attach importance to stuff or not is different. There's not going to be necessarily one-size-fits-all approach. But for me and my two kids, that, that tends to have worked. Well, um, thank you all so much for... I say again a big thank you to Tish for, for making it out. Who is that? Hi, Papa.